Aliens and flying saucers. This is all an illusion. Please pardon the confusion. You made an ass out of yourself and me for a Hey, hey. Welcome to the ninth episode of Two Riders Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of some New York Times bestsellers, and a Bleacher Report contributor. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the sizzling MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to poetry to screenwriting to comic books to whatever you're thinking of. And today's guest is Kevin Van Valkenburg. He's an ESPN.com and ESPN the Magazine senior writer. And this is sort of a funky episode because it stems from a Twitter beef we engaged in. I guess it was a Twitter beef. One that started with a really stupid blog post written by me. And one that continued with sort of a heated back and forth DMing via Twitter. And I actually thought after we made peace, it'd be a really good thing to discuss and a good way to discuss writers and social media and Twitter and Facebook And what the fuck have we all come to? Where did our dignity go? Where did our pride disappear to? I'm talking about me as much as anyone. And that's what we'll be discussing today on Two Riders, Sling and Yang. I, you know, I kind of talked about this in the intro and I really, I love that we're doing this because it started with me kind of being an (laughs) asshole. And I like when like I emerged from being an asshole to having like peace and love. You know, it's kind of like, Sure. People always think like, oh, writers love controversy and writers love this. And the truth of the matter is like, I don't really, I like, I like chatting and engaging and talking and blah, blah, blah. I don't like, you know, so, so to give a little background, I wrote a blog post, a pretty bad blog post um, about Clay Travis. What's the name of Clay Travis's site? It's the college football Outkick the coverage. Outkick the coverage. And uh, I am not a Clay Travis fan. I gather you are not a particularly big <laughs> Clay Travis fan. Uh, uh, I'm not even sure I will dignify uh, Clay with a with an opinion there. Yeah, fair I'm, enough. Uh, I'll also get into that maybe throughout this. I guess. Yeah, that's fair. But uh, I'll just say he's kind of a douchebag. And uh, I wrote a post about a Clay Travis blog post that I, I uh, about something he wrote on his blog that I did not like. And I referenced and I wrote and I really feel bad about this. I'm not gonna lie. I, the line was <laughs> summoning Kevin Van Volkenberg. That that's basically what I referred to, and I I don't remember what I called the thing you wrote, but I I was like some crappy column or some shitty column, I think. Mm-hmm. And you sent me a direct message that was very fair, and mm-hmm. I felt really bad. I actually did. Mm-hmm. I felt really bad. And then we had this really great sort of back and forth, and you wrote one of the most blisteringly awesome things ever. <laughs> and I even though it was a DM, I I I, I want to formally ask your permission if I can read some of this. Would that be okay with you? Uh, that would be okay, yeah. Okay, you wrote, let me ask a serious question. Why do you feel such a pressing need to weigh in on literally almost everything? Is it boredom therapy? Sitting on essentially a pier, if I can refer to myself, uh, to myself as such in your eyes, when you go nuclear on people who dismiss your own work, is just a weak contradiction that's always bugged me about you. There's work you've done that I didn't care for, care for. That's true if it's Riley and Wright Thompson and countless others I think of as peers and heroes. I long ago cured myself with the desire to say, go on sportsjournalist.com or, and say, blog about it. If Clay Travis shits on me, meh, who cares? 
Uh, he's a stone-cold racist and a coward, which is great. I agree. And I knew writing that column was going to unleash the crazy. But guess what? I got a ton of comments from professional athletes when it ran saying how much they appreciated it. Clay Travis wasn't the intended audience, nor were you. I certainly don't think you should hold back if this is somehow therapeutic for you to share opinions about pretty much everything under the sun. Writing is good therapy for a lot of people, including myself. I do think you're often pretty sloppy with your throwaway blogs, which is 100% correct, and then completely freak out when someone does it to you. 98% probably true. And I'm just <laughs> curious whether you realize the disconnect or not. Like, if I'd done what you did to me, dismiss me as a nobody, intentional or not, and then again refer to you as, a, as misguided, you'd have fired off several blog posts trying to work through it. Okay, so that was the first part. Then mm -hmm. you wrote, which I also really liked, you said... I wrote something back, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm, you know, blah, kind of sorry and blah, blah, blah. And you wrote, mm -hmm. I'm actually not hurt. I do think you aren't really aware of how your social media presence comes off. You claim you're okay mm -hmm. with that, but it doesn't really ring true. Um, I'm honestly not writing this as a clapback because I respect the shit out of your career and in general get mad when people use social media venting as, as an excuse to dismiss what you've done. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like, first of all, that was so beautifully written and like... <laughs> I was like literally sitting outside of Panera going like, oh, crap. And uh, it was just really good and really kind of vicious, but like appropriately vicious. And I wonder yeah. like, because I think about this as I check Twitter for the 7,000th time in a day, like, mm -hmm. what do you feel like social media is doing? Like you and I, we're veteran writers. I got, I, I think I have maybe six years <clears throat> in you in the business. We've both been around a while now. Like, mm -hmm. what is social media doing to us, do you think? I think that it's honestly, it's making us feel like we have to weigh in on all things. Like if there are news breaks or whatever, you sort of feel like, oh, like people talk a lot about this phenomenon of like when a celebrity dies, that almost everyone feels like they have to have some kind of anecdote or this person meant so much to me or this is when I went to the high school dance and, you know, listen to first listen to Chuck Berry, whatever, like everyone feels like, oh, I, I have to say something. And I think I'm starting to realize that that impulse is crazy. Like, I don't, I'm not nearly informed enough or smart enough uh, or, I, I guess, astute enough to really have a relevant opinion that other people would want to hear. But social media, I guess, specifically Twitter, is constantly giving us, like, a microphone where we just kind of feel compelled to throw up a little bit on on the page and what I guess I, I'm, I, I literally, I've thought a lot about this too, since we sort of talked about this stuff. And I will say that like, I'm, I can be particularly sharp tongued when it comes to like writing online, because I have spent like a life now sort of kind of fighting back against trolls and like responding to blog comments and like feeling like, Oh, I'm not going to let that person get the last word. <laughs> And so when someone comes at me and it's someone who I know fairly well, like I kind of feel if I'm really going to engage them, I'm going to make it sting a little bit. Right. And I don't, I don't know that I like that impulse about myself. Like I think I, even after our discussion, you know, I really do. I've always really liked your work and always felt like when you first got to SI, I was like, oh man, like that could be my path eventually. Like, you know, Jeff worked in a newspaper and then he went to SI and like, that's my dream. Like, that's what I wanted for so long. And then, you know, you, you write books and even the Deadspin thing you wrote today, I don't know if depending on people who listen to this, like the amount of reporting that you did in that thing was amazing. And I'm sitting here reading this being like, God, I wish I was half the reporter that Jeff is. And so there are times when I feel like if I was one of your friends, 
I would, and I think there's some projection on this because I think my friends sometimes think about this me, but it's the same thing about me too. But I want to grab you and be like, don't waste your time on this bullshit. Right. <laughs> You're so much better than this stuff. But I get it like I, because I've done it too. And I found myself wasting time and sort of like dismissing something or being kind of pithy about it. And someone being like, wow, man, I actually was sort of hurt by that. That's interesting. That's very well said. I notice you're. Uh, I'm looking at your Twitter stream right now, and something is definitely wrong with you. Um, <laughs> I feel like today you only tweeted like four times, and we really need to talk about that because that yeah. is that. I mean, how do you? I see. I feel like. I feel like in a way, it is. Especially writing books and researching books, like you are in front of a laptop a lot. You are for me personally. I'm in a Starbucks yep. in front of a laptop, mm-hmm. going through old clips. And it's like this way of conversing. But then I think like, is it a good way of conversing? Am I, by lashing out about Trump 700 times in a day, is that, is there any good? I mean, I just, I don't know. And I don't know, you know, like, is this just, are we a better served people if Twitter just vanished tomorrow? Do you think? I think so in some ways. I mean, I don't know. There's, I've certainly met a lot of people like through Twitter and made friendships and relationships and probably like raised my own writing profile a little bit just by being, you know, somewhat passionate or somewhat funny or whatever. And so there's friendships and connections that I've really liked as a result of Twitter that I've made. But I also think that it's ruined my attention span. Like oh, I used yeah. to be such a voracious reader of novels and stuff. And, and I, now when I sit down, like I'll, I'll read two pages of novel and there's just itch in my brain when I get to kind of a boring paragraph where I'm like, I wonder what's going on on Twitter. (laughs) And literally just like this week, I deleted it from my phone probably for the fifth time or something, but you know, I'd I'd like it to be last for a couple of weeks just to sort of detox a little bit because all the news, the Trump stuff is just making me like insane. Like in some of it as a curiosity, just wanting to constantly like be up on what's going on and to sort of see all the things that are written about it, whether it's funny or whether it's sort of these scathing sort of takedown tweets or these, you know, little tidbits that Maggie Haberman is dropping, you know, from, from inside the Trump, you know, sphere that no one else kind of has. And, and all of that has, I think, turned my brain into mush a little bit. And the, I don't think that the, the previous generation of the people who had our jobs, like, not sure that they had these kind of distractions. Now they might've had other distractions because they had bigger and better expense accounts and uh, you know, different sort of deadlines that we did, but I don't, this is like, I'm not sure it's particularly good for magazine writers of the present. Well, if you told, if you told ESPN tomorrow, I'm getting off Twitter, would they encourage you? Do they care? Uh, I think in my position, they would say, great. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome, Kevin. We, we don't ever have to worry about you like tweeting about politics again. And that makes us super happy uh, because it's, it's really hard to not, uh, I think, weigh in a little bit on some stuff. And I think, you know, it's not that Eastman doesn't want you to have opinions. It's just that like what people are watching you for sports. So we're reading about you for sports. So at, at some point, you know, whether you're liberal or conservative or whatever, you're you're turning off a certain percentage of the fan base and I get it. I actually, I feel like I'm sort of growing sort of, I don't know, woke to that. It's like, if I only really, if I follow Kevin Valkberg because I like golf columns, I don't know that I want to necessarily read about social justice. Now I would say in my life, like that 
thing covers everything that you know that's you can't be a human being without being kind of invested in what's going on in charlottesville or or what the next charlottesville is going to be but some people don't feel like that way they feel like sports is an escape and that's i guess that's the double-edged sword of of beating someone who writes about sports is that you know you have super passionate audience that cares about uh what's going on but they might not be as engaged in the larger part of the world because it might feel like oh, i just i get sick of that stuff so i don't know i mean there's times when i think twitter is super valuable for my job when i'm at majors when i'm at the Ryder cup when i'm at super bowl or whatever and i can give you a behind the scenes sort of window into stuff and i i've had a lot of people say yeah i really love your feed because you recommend great stories like you read a lot of magazine stories that i would otherwise miss and that's cool but so much of the sort of like kind of other stuff i think his pain would be like, yeah, we, we're fine. Now that would be different for somebody who I think, you know, Adam Schefter couldn't do his job without Twitter and, you know, neither could Woj and people like that. So I don't know. It's just it, what, what I'm, I have the luxury of not having to be like ever do breaking news. Right. But uh, I think it also, is, I mean, my buddy, Wright Thompson, he totally got off Twitter and his pen was happy because so many people would kind of, troll him and try to take shots at him that he would he would frustrate him in the sense of you know what is this what is this doing i'm basically like inviting all this kind of hate into my phone every day in right into my face and for his job it's it served no greater purpose like you can if you can divorce yourself from like the reaction of it or the likings of it, like how many people are talking about my story? Like there's an ego involved in that. Oh yeah. I think that there's a huge incentive to get off Twitter. If you write like features, just, you know, it's because it's not the reward isn't worth what the sort of downside is. I actually, um, I say this to my wife all the time and I swear to God, it's true. If I didn't have to sell books, I would delete Twitter right now. Now the problem is, I use Twitter all the time. And mm-hmm. I, for me, it's almost like I would I would be a really bad alcoholic. I don't drink, but I would be a really bad alcoholic because I either need it all or nothing. Like I I can't be like, oh, I'm just going to tweet twice today. You know, like mm-hmm. I don't really have that impulse control. And I wish I did. And I would love to get rid of Twitter. I would love to get rid of Twitter. I, man, I hate it. I actually hate it. But I don't know what to do about it because I feel like I need to build, you know, the cliche, I need to build a stupid audience, you know? But maybe I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Well, you said, you know, something, I think, when we were talking over DM about, you know, as a part of me wishes I could be Laura Hillbrand or David Grant or someone who, right. you know, just is completely detached from it. And I'm wondering, does that exist anymore? Like, can people, can those authors, how many of those authors can really still do that? I wonder what if someone in book publishing, and you would certainly know this better than I, what what they would say about well does if my author doesn't have a twitter presence is it like a death of like pushing the book or is it the book going to sink or swim on its own merits yeah that's interesting i will tell you this like i worked it sounds so stupid but it's it's just being honest here i worked to build up my twitter following like if you look at my i'm literally looking right now if you look mm-hmm. at my i have 58,400 followers and i follow 53,000 people and the reason mm-hmm. that is is because I figured out if you follow people, a lot of people follow you back. And mm-hmm. that sounds dumb. That sounds like, oh, you need a Twitter. Like you need people. It's, that is not an ego thing. It is mm-hmm. a, when I'm selling a book, I can say to publishing companies, I have 58,000 Twitter followers. So that's direct marketing. And it's so pathetic. You know, like mm-hmm. it's so pathetic. 
But I feel like if I were a publishing house, I actually would want to know how many Twitter followers my authors have, you know, and what kind of engagement they can have. Mm-hmm. But I hate it. It's funny, you know, and I'm going to wade into this sort of carefully, but Clay Travis, of all people, wrote a thing a while back that I actually, before I'd ever had any encounters with him, I agreed with. That I thought was like really interesting way to look at it, which was that he was sort of um, theorizing that like, in the future, there wouldn't necessarily be like news organizations that got credentialed for, uh, you know, games to go to. That if you if you were someone, you basically your own brand would be what got you enough credibility to sort of get a credential to cover the Alabama Florida game, or whatever. And that you know you would sort of sink or swim based on kind of how many people were interested in you. That that would be more have more relevance. And I remember reading that I was like, oh yeah, this is really interesting. Like maybe I'll follow this guy. And I actually. For whatever, like, you know, Clay, I have all these people saying, he destroyed your column, whatever. Oh, you, you know, all of the bros saying, he destroyed you. Mm-hmm. I didn't read it, whatever thing he wrote. In part because I knew that it would probably sting a little bit. And in part because I feel like someone like that, like, we, I, a couple of my friends talk about this once. Everyone has a role to play in this whole giant media sphere. Is that thankfully, I think for our interest, like, people like us get to write magazine stories or, or books, whatever. And some people are the people who sort of see, oh, there's a void in the marketplace there. And that void is like the anti-PC crowd. And I'm going to completely go nuclear on these people and I'm going to attack them. Uh, not necessarily because I 100% believe it, but because I know that that's going to draw a lot of sort of eyeballs and viewers, whatever. And so if someone wants to do that to like a story of mine, so be it. That's right. fine. Like I would rather just not even read it then have it, you know, get upset about it. Because as I said, that column was for a very specific audience. It was for the undefeated. It was like, can you bring a white person's perspective uh, to this sort of example of what feels like privilege? And um, and the, I still feel like the fact that Ryan Lochte, look at him, he got to be on Dancing with Stars, on ABC property, <laughs> after all this stuff he went through, after saying someone held a gun to my head and I was like, yo, bro, look, you better step back and don't don't mess with us. Like, none of that happened. Right. And I, I just don't feel like the willingness to believe would have been quite as much as if he were African-American. And maybe that's uh, maybe that's my naivete or, or my sort of biases, but that's I wrote it the best I could and I wrote it in a sort of hopeful way, I thought, of like sort of saying, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, you know, that's connecting it in some ways to the Olympics that like we'll, we'll sort of believe in, in seeing color less as we kind of go forward. And I think the more I think about that now, especially in light of what's been happening in the last few weeks, I think that was kind of naive, but it's still like, you know, Rajon Rondo was like, man, I love that column. Like, and you know, some other uh, professional athletes were like, and like Black Thought, the rapper was like, dude, this is the best column I've like read this. You know, so I felt good about that. And right. so I guess, you know, what fired me up a little bit was just was when I was like, oh, here's someone who's like a peer and someone whose work I certainly respect kind of just, you know, dashing off and saying, well, this is shitty with like a line. And and honestly, like, sorry, about I that. Overreact- no, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I overreacted. Okay. But I, I said, again, like some of that is projection is that like, I think I probably do the same kind of thing in, you know, with Twitter that you sometimes do with blog posts, which is like, why can't I direct that energy into something more worth my time and talents? And that's a, I think that's one of the great conundrums I think of our, (laughs) of our time is like how much time and energy are we wasting on, 
a scrolling news feed that changes every 20 seconds. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, it's funny because I, uh, I had a thing happen right around the time of our exchange, a little bit before. There was a, um, there was a professor at George Mason University who um, mm-hmm. I'd never heard of before. and Not that that means anything. I'm not, I'm not missing him. And his name was Tim Devenny, and he took to Twitter one day, and he started tweeting at me, you're a terrible writer, Jeff. He's a, he's a journalism professor, a writing professor. You're a terrible writer, Jeff, who's been using overreaction to advance your career for decades, just like Trump. The only way I'd respect you is if you choose to stop spewing your limpid, tonal, tonally repugnant prose. Stop writing, Jeff. Go sell used cars. Um, also, you spelled Hemingway with two M's in your shit book on bonds, which is true. I, I'm embarrassed to say I've been pissed about that for years. Right. <laughs> so all this is coming from a writing professor from George Mason. And mm-hmm. I guess I shouldn't care. Right. And instead, I wrote this mm-hmm. blog post kind of eviscerating the guy. And and, he, and I mean, and then you're like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing with my life? I just really love writing. You know what? Mm-hmm. It's such a big, colossal waste of time and shit show and. I feel like I need to, like, I want to go write for the daily newspaper in Alaska and just, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. You well, know. but so here's where I think that what we, I would say we'd probably agree on is that writing about, like, interacting with people online dehumanizes it in a way that makes it seem like that guy would not say that to your face. Like, no. he, and he wouldn't even say it if he was on this, like, phone call, like, right. between you and I. Like, he wouldn't, he would be a little bit scared or he would kind of couch it with, but something about, sort of just firing off Facebook posts or whatever to some uh, person makes it, you know, for whatever reason, something that he, you did annoyed him and that, that festered and he decided, you know what, I'm finally going to sort of mouth off or whatever. Whereas like if you were in, you know, if, he, if you came to his class and he would probably be like, whoa, you know, Jeff's actually done a lot of good work that I right. really like. Like it's just so much easier to be dismissive. And I've, and weirdly like, I've gotten in fights with people over online that then like we ended up sort of talking and then we ended up being friends because we ended up realizing that we had a lot more in common than uh, we thought. Because if you do this for a living, it's kind of a weird obsessive thing to do, right? Like write about other people and like dig into their backgrounds and ask them weird questions that, you know, would otherwise seem really like overly personal. And so I think that, you know, we, we end up connecting with those people more than, we end up sort of being enemies, but God, like it's just so dehumanizing online to kind of have someone take a little like crack at you and not feel compelled to crack back. And especially if you feel like you're a good enough writer that you can crack back and you can't hurt their feelings. Cause then you're like, ah, now we're good. Now we're even. Right. The funny thing is, and it's like, it's like, yeah, I got him. And then you look and it's like Pete, Pete Nets fan with like 12 followers. I showed Pete, you know, like, I got, and also like the other thing is I, I actually think to going along with what you said, like there's something about uh, a tweet or a Facebook post, the words sit there. So it mm-hmm. might've been some guy's thought that literally went from one ear to the other in eight seconds and you just typed it out and then he didn't think of it again, mm-hmm. but you're staring at the thing and staring at the thing and staring at the thing. And it kind of festers and builds. And maybe what was just a fleeting thought to this guy you know, while he's watching Rocky three to you is like this thing that's pisses you off. And then you get, you end up looking really dumb. So, sure. I um, mean, to you know, to him, that's a thought or whatever, probably, but to you, that's like, that's your life's work. You know, that's what you slave away every day at Panera or all the stuff that you kind of grind over or, or me when I 
stay up late at night and despite having sick kids and riding until three in the morning, like you, you we put a lot of sort of blood, sweat and tears into this. And so to f- make it, you know, to feel like it's dismissed, it stings. And, you know, it, what, what's, I think sometimes is frustrating and what I learned, I think over time, what, cause I used to be, when I was young, and I think you've written about this and talked a lot about this too, is you feel like you, you're really smart and you feel like, you know, writing and you feel like, you know, you read stories and be like, ah, that story sucks. Like, mm-hmm. well, I could, I could totally nail that story if I was given the chance, whatever. And then when you start to do it and you realize like how hard it is, you're like, oh man, like I, I kind of get right the complexity of stuff like this. And so part of when you, when you get ripped by, you know, dead spin or get ripped by some sort of blog or whatever. Uh, and I honestly, I like a lot of those dead spin guys and I've grown so mm-hmm. friendly with a lot of them. Um, but I've been ripped by them, understandably, sure. because everyone gets their turn in the barrel. You feel like saying, come on, man, like you, you ought to like understand how hard this is. Uh, and if you don't, then maybe you should take a, take a turn. Like it's, it's hard sometimes to put a lot of work into something, have somebody sit down in their desk and tell you how much it sucks when you've worked on it for six months. Like I'm sure you've felt that way about books or whatever, where you can feel like, are you effing kidding me? Like you're going to dismiss six months of work in before lunch, you right. know, when you just you needed a blog post today. Right. And so it's, it's hard not to crack back at those people and say, screw you. But you also have to just realize like everyone has a role and that's their role and that's okay. Like if in, and eventually I think a lot of those people who rip, 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 kind of grow tired of that because it's kind of an empty calorie sort of way of doing things. It's not better or worse, but it just feels eventually like, Oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And the ones, you know, you see guys, you know, like Will Leach who left Deadspin to do magazine work and just sort of kind of evolved into something else. You see a lot of people end up doing that. Greg Howard doing that. Like a lot of those guys, you know, they go from being critics to being actual sort of people who, who try the art. And I think that that's a good thing. Uh, it doesn't mean that the critics shouldn't exist because the critics have a role, but I think it just means that like, it's freaking hard to do this and you find out when you do it, it's not always easy. Not always something that you just should just dismiss kind of like, ah, this, this story doesn't get it clearly. Right. I remember actually being a, I remember being in college at Delaware, by the way, we're both, we're both walk on athletes at one double schools. Yeah. You, uh, you walked on football, Montana, <laughs> I ran, yes, I, uh, I ran track at Delaware, but the one thing I have over you is track was a 1A program uh, at Delaware. Nice. So you were one. And uh, Delaware beat Montana in the playoffs when I was covering the team in like 94. So oh, you weren't nice. there yet. I though. think, uh, yeah. Well, I would live in Missoula. So if you were at that game in Missoula, I might have been there. Yeah. Uh, did you tr- did Delaware send you the student newspaper to across the country? To, uh, they did, but they did not send me. A... They did not send me. Okay. So. Yeah. Um, but what I was thinking is when I was in uh, – when I was in college and I would read like the local writers for like the Wilmington news journal or the Newark post, Newark post or whatever. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. I'm better than these guys. These guys suck. Like look, that lead's not good or blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm better. And this, you know, you see like the 50 year old guy who's been covering the blue hens for 20 years. And you're like, God, I'm so much better. And then once yeah. you get in the business, you realize that like these guys know the sports better than I do. They've cultivated mm-hmm. sources for years, you know, like, Mm-hmm. They get everything, they get the rhythms of a football game and it is a lot harder. It is a mm-hmm. lot harder than people think. And sure. I always, I always want to like take my own, my young whippersnapper self and smack him in the head, you know, because <laughs> they always say youth is wasted on the young. And I feel like mm-hmm. in journalism, especially there's always the young guy at Syracuse or Northwestern or whoever it could be Delaware, or Montana, 
who thinks he's like sure. the shit, you know, because mm-hmm. he can turn a quick phrase. Um, sure. You came up, you, you were hired by the Baltimore Sun out of Montana. Did you think you were the shit or no? Uh, I didn't really think I was a shit. I thought that um, I was, you know, one of the first kids, I think, um, in a long time at Montana to go like directly from college to like a big newspaper. The, the sun at the time was like it was on the fringe of being like a top 10 paper in the country mm-hmm. and sort of been, you know, some awards, whatever. So it felt like a big deal um, to me and to all my classmates that I had sort of gotten that. But um I was very kind of, I think a little bit shaky about just how good I was. Like I, I had always, I, I think maybe like you'd grown up like reading Sports Illustrated and like, that was the goal. That was what I wanted. And I wasn't really ever, I didn't think it would actually ever have any chance of happening deep down until like I got a job at the Sun right out of college. And then I was like, okay, here's an actual springboard. Like I don't have to go to you know, Whitefish and then Spokane and then maybe Seattle and then maybe Denver and then maybe, uh, right. you know, the, the sports illustrate someday. I can kind of go right from uh, there to there. But um, I mean, I covered high schools for two years. I covered crime, first of all, for six months. And then I covered high schools for two years after that. So it was a pretty humbling experience. Like you, I look back sometimes and laugh at some of those clips where like I'm trying to turn like cute Riley-esque phrases in a story about like boys lacrosse. You know, like, <laughs> it's like three o'clock in the afternoon lacrosse between Mount Hebron and, you know, Glenelg High School in, in Howard County, Maryland. It's, it's pretty bad, pretty, pretty overreaching writing. But I wanted so badly to kind of like show that I was sort of better than this, that that was kind of what I was doing. And I think there were probably 200 kids just like me and why I kind of slowly, you know, worked my way up out of the spout into becoming a you know, writer at ESPN is probably a combination of luck and that I worked my ass off doing it. So right, right. Um, this is totally random. You, uh, I yeah. covered crime for about the same amount of time as you did. I did in Nashville. Yeah. What's your best crime story? Crime covering story? Do you have one? Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I tell this to all the classes that I go and talk to. I was working on the desk when I was a rewrite person every Saturday. So I'd cover like cop speed during the week. And then uh, on the Saturday night for a year, so I did specifically crime for six months. And then I split the last six months covering high school sports, like five days a week and then rewrite um, Saturday. And what, what a rewrite person is a newspaper is like anything, any story that's kind of going on during the day, if it's not kind of like over as the kind of the, that report shift ends, you pick it up, or you end up writing other stories like, you know, that come up, you know, as cops get shot or someone else gets shot, like there's kidnappings, there's mm-hmm. rapes, murders, all that stuff. So Baltimore is a great like sort of uh, testing ground for this. So one night I'm working rewrite on the desk and uh, get a call from another reporter and she's like, hey, I have a police source who's going to call you. Um, this is crazy story going on and uh, you're going to need to be the person who kind of writes it. all the time. I was like, oh, OK. This cop calls me and he's like, yeah, um, so this crazy story where this woman, uh, she was like shopping at grocery store at like one o'clock in the morning. Uh, she was like getting her stuff ready for her family. And she met this guy at the grocery store and the guy was like, hey, you know, can you give me a ride home? She's like, yeah, sure. Uh, at some point he sort of says, you know, do you want to have sex? She's like, yeah, sure. They like have sex in his car. And then he beats her to death and kills her and he cuts off her head Whoa. and he throws her body in like a, um, 
like a construction site and they drive around the rest of Baltimore for like half the night with her head in the car and he throws her head in the dumpster, different dumpster. And then he goes to work like as a job as like a security guard at a bank. And so I'm, you know, I'm 22 years old. I've grown up in Missoula, Montana, and I'm hearing the cop sort of describe all this stuff. And I'm just like horrified. Like, just, oh my God, like, what, 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 how, how am I absolutely going to, you know, figure out how, how am I going to hold it together long enough to write this story? And so wrote the story and the, one of the older veterans on the, the news desk who had seen a lot of shit uh, over time, eventually like we're writing the story and we get all the stuff and he starts like cracking like Monty Python jokes about like, Oh, lady lost her head. And we were like dying laughing. And it was so like in out of context, like as a person who's, if you'd never worked in newsrooms, you're right. like, I cannot believe people would make that kind of like awful black humor kind of jokes. But that's what newsrooms are like. Cause you end up seeing so much awful shit that you end up kind of joking about inappropriate stuff uh, late on deadline um, just to deal with like not having to, you know, sort of stomach the awfulness of it in your brain. Right. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. That stuff. I mean, yeah, I feel like every kid should work the cops beat at some point. Oh yes, absolutely. I wish, I wish the traditional path that you and I went through existed. And I think, it's not like I get frustrated sometimes when I see a really what I think is a bad long form story, uh, because I think to myself, that person should not be writing 5000 words. That person should be writing 500 words and then 800 words and a thousand words. But those jobs don't exist anymore. Like you cannot get out of college and start covering preps at the Baltimore Sun anymore. And so I always feel like I have to check myself and say, you know what, like maybe the, the easier path into doing this sometimes is pitching a 5,000 word story to Bleacher Report or SB Nation long form or stuff like that. And that's why, you know, I think I, I feel like I read a lot of bad stories in some of those things, but I had to kind of like bite my tongue. Cause I was like, it's totally different. Like I, I really think the way to learn how to write, and I don't know if you feel this way about books, but it's just to write 500 words before you write a thousand. And you know, my buddy, Wright, He wrote like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of 2000 word stories before he ever wrote a 5000 word story. Right. And yet I see sometimes people like their first story for Bleach Report long form or Espanation long form or whatever is an 8000 word story and the arc of the story is essentially some guy has a knee injury. Right. And you're like this is not enough to carry this kind of story, but they don't know any better cuz that's they didn't get that kind of education and that is like one of the great sort of sadness uh, uh things I feel about modern journalism is the the natural teaching mechanism that we went through doesn't exist. And so to be like smarmy about it is pointless because kids are like, how the hell else am I supposed to sort of break in? I don't, I can't go do two years of preps to sort of learn how to write small before I write big. He stares at the knee. It sits before him (laughs) throbbing gently in the Baltimore wind. There's so many, I think that like, I loved Gary Smith when I was young, Yeah, but I think Gary Smith inspired more bad long form than anyone other than Hunter S. Thompson. Like there's so many leads of mine that are like really bad Gary Smith parody. And Gary Smith is like the nicest person of all time. Yeah. Yeah. And his style was very unique to him. Uh, But like, there's so many, I've read them. It's like running. The boy can hear his heartbeat (laughs) as he runs around. (laughs) Never start with the wind. If you ever start your story, starting with the wind. 
you may want to you may want to give it a second shot. Yeah. That's funny. Um, you uh, you have some interesting stuff here. I mean, you uh, you co- you're Michael Phelps, a Baltimore guy. You covered him a lot, and I remember vividly when he was caught with the photo of the bong with the with the bong, yes. and you were covering him at that point. I mean, he was, I was, and and I remember thinking, how can I possibly blame this guy? Like all he does is swim. It has to be the yeah. most boring robotic life of all time. I'm not even I'm not a pot smoker or anything, but like I don't know, like go have a good time. You've earned it. Yeah. And I always thought the reaction to him smoking pot was a little weird. And I, I was wondering what was that like to cover that whole phenomenon? Did you have sympathy for him? Did you think what an idiot? Like what we what we how, how was that for you? You know, I think it's um that's it's really an interesting kind of tale because the way that Michael was marketed um was very much like um the way that they 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 kind of tried to mold it after tiger woods in some ways it's like here's this perfect person here's this perfect corporate sort of uh cipher that everyone can sort of root for or whatever and when those facades kind of crack the backlash is is much greater than if they were sort of cast as someone who is flawed and normal or whatever. Like if that were Ryan Lochte and he had been caught with a bong or whatever, it wouldn't nearly have been, I think, the, quite the controversy as it was, even if Lochte had been the equivalent of Phelps. But there's a kind of like a neener, neener, you you lying hypocrite thing that goes on uh, w- with that kind of stuff. And when it's someone who sort of has cast as being sort of holier than thou, and I always kind of felt like, that his handlers realized that it was sort of a mistake to hold him up as this kind of model of perfection when he was certainly not that because no one is, and then felt in many ways trapped by that um, kind of shell that they put up around him. He, he was someone who gave up his childhood essentially to chase the Olympic dream, you know, that, that not only just an Olympic dream, but the, the perfect Olympic dream that he spent, seven hours a day swimming back and forth, staring at the black line at the bottom of the pool. Right. And so when his coach, Bob Bowman explained to me once, it was like, if you've forced someone to do that, that when the, the athletic event kind of ends, that it's almost like you have to let them kind of go a little bit crazy because otherwise they'll, they'll, completely like snap like right. he had to sort of be grasp as much sort of being a teenager as possible as he could so i was i think i was visiting a friend down in miami when that story broke i flew home the next day i didn't i didn't write like the, the initial piece of it but i certainly kind of wrote about the fallout and I'd had a good enough relationship with them that um i had sort of been texting with um his coach and saying you know look like he's gonna have to talk to somebody about this i think it should be me uh, you know, and eventually his coach was like, yep, come on down to the pool and, and let's talk. And so Michael ended up giving the first interview to me about the whole thing. And I said to him before we started talking, I said, look, this does not come from any place of judgment before I start quoting you, because I have certainly not been a person who has been uh, perfect in, in my uh, life. So I want you to know, like, whatever questions that I ask you here are just from a journalistic perspective and not a moral judgment. And he was like, Gabe, hey, Thanks. Appreciate it. And he was, you know, as honest, I think, as he could be in knowing that he was in some ways a corporation worth hundred million dollars at that point too. And had to sort of, you know, walk the line between being completely honest and also dealing with the fallout. So 
what I've always sort of felt a little bit frustrated with covering Olympic athletes in general is that they are so easily kind of like shaped into this like perfect American sort of deal. Like there's this, there's this jingoism that kind of goes along this patriotism that gets wrapped up in the coverage of them. And they don't end up getting covered like real like teams or like real, like, like you'd cover a boxer, or like you'd cover a baseball player. And so when you like are critical of them, the backlash is sort of like somehow that you're being less than patriotic. And so sometimes I got into it a little bit with his people because I felt like it's my job to cover him. Like it's an actual beat. And that means writing sort of things about him that are critical. And they were occasionally, kind of pissed at me about it. I, I wrote something as the last thing I probably will ever write about him, but when everything this year was sort of being talked about, about how kind of him having a kid and like giving up alcohol, that all these were sort of a, a signs of maturity and that he had kind of overcome all this stuff in his life and now had a much better storybook ending uh, that was not the second DUI stuff. I was kind of like, you know what? I, I said this in the piece this is not like sobriety is not like crossing a finish line. It's like, you're going to, he's going to struggle with this kind of stuff forever. And so all of this kind of laudatory celebratory stuff feels a little bit kind of like overdone to me. Like I wish that we could kind of pump the brakes a little bit on it and be like, this is great. I'm glad that Michael got his life together, but this is a guy who's had, you know, two, two DWIs and before he turned 30. Right. Like if it was a normal sort of person, we'd look upon them with a lot more skepticism and shame in some ways. But as a professional athlete, he was able to kind of just wipe away those sins. And so I always felt like my role, just knowing him better than most people, was to be a little bit more critical or have a little bit more critical eye upon him and not be a sort of like, rah, rah, go USA. Right. I am. Um, I hate, 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 hate the our need for these guys, men and women, to have storybook endings. You know, like, I remember, uh, I'm a New Yorker, and I remember when Patrick Ewing left the Knicks, and he decided to keep playing. He played a year with the Sonics and a year with the Magic, and it was like, but he's not retiring a Nick. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> the guy's going to get paid $10 million, travel first class, sit on a bench, you know, hang out with his guys. Uh, that's a storybook ending. Like, who yeah. am I to say? And I just think, like, the storybook ending isn't Michael Phelps. Like Michael Phelps still has another, hopefully 70 years of his life to live. Like yeah. he's going to go to the bathroom and he's going to have a job and he's going to blah, blah, blah. Like it's like, we need it. It's not like they yeah. need it. You know, I don't, I don't know why it makes people so uncomfortable to see athletes a little bit diminished or whatever, to see them kind of limp home. You know, I, I kind of like, I love that stage in an athlete's career. I'm one of the few people who really liked Jordan's time with the Wizards because it was like, well, he's not anything close to what he once was. And yeah, he's sort of kind of selfish and maybe making this team worse. But I sort of liked watching him struggle against Father Time and sort of having to, to reconcile with who he was. And to me, that the whole idea of like a storybook ending is such a false kind of thing because literature, like in, in so many ways, like ends with sad. It's like sad endings are so much better than great innings like there's a part of me that wouldn't would love to see tiger woods call together some kind of comeback but i also i this is how most athletes careers end when they're broken and they're like struggling to figure out what's next the idea that it's all like Derek jeter where it's like i get the last hit and they right. carry me off the field and now everyone can feel good about me leaving 
no, like that's okay if you get carted off too. Like that's so much a, a natural kind of ending for a football player or a baseball player is just giving until your body breaks and then you, you can't give anymore and you don't know when the exit, it's time to make an exit. You just get dragged off. Yeah, that's, isn't that sports? Like when someone's better than you, they take your spot and then you're done. I agree. There's no shame if like uh, – Matt Forte runs for 200 yards this year for the Jets and then retires. Like that's fine. That's kind of what that's that's life. You you, you come in sure. strong and you limp out. You know that's totally yep. fine. Um, yep. Let me ask you one more thing. You um I read yeah. you wrote one of the best farewell columns I've read and it was in the Baltimore Sun when you left in 2012. And mm-hmm. um, you wrote something that I I it really spoke to me, which is you said um, in every significant interview I would ask that question to my subject. Do you ever wonder where you'd be right now if you'd gone left instead of right at some point, if you'd chosen to let the tide recede um, and stayed safely on the beach? Um, Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? And do you still do it? Uh, I do still do it. It's an allusion to um, Shakespeare uh, line. There's a tide in the affairs of men, which is part of Julius Caesar. And, and, they're sort of deciding whether to take up arms against Caesar and uh, you know, what will be sort of right for the Republic. And, and Brutus is saying to Octavius, you know, essentially, if we don't do this now, we will, like, this is our moment. They're, they're, the tides and affairs of men, you know, which taken at the flood lead to fortune. And it was always kind of one of my favorite um, things in Shakespeare. And, and so, I, I don't know, like, I it always made, I always have these kind of, I'm one of those people who wonders like, what if I had done this? Like the, the number of things that had to go right for me to get a job at ESPN were numerous. Like it's, it's, it's almost like it's a thousand sort of different points of when I could have done things differently. I could have written this story differently. I could have, you know, I ended up in best American sports writing when I was 26 and it was all because I wrote a letter to family of a girl who had both of her arms, both of her hands and both of her feet amputated because she got bacterial meningitis. And my editors really wanted the story and everyone was trying to get the story. And the family was like, we are not talking to anybody. And instead I was really nervous that I, you know, they, I didn't want to knock on their door. I didn't want to be an asshole. And so instead I like sat down and wrote them a letter and didn't hear from them for six months. And then six months later they called me the dad called me and said, you know, Raina, this, this girl who was a college basketball player at Virginia Tech, she's going to have a birthday party. She's coming home from the hospital. She's, eventually, she's going to get prosthetic limbs. Come to her birthday party and, and start hanging out with us. I like the letter that you wrote. If I had never written that letter, I don't know that I would ever have like clips to show Like when I interviewed at Sports Illustrated, when I interviewed ESPN. And so little decisions like that kind of gnaw at me all the time. And I think you, when you ask that question in interviews, it, it sometimes reveals – like what kind of person that you're talking to if they're if they're kind of dismissive about it, like no nah, i never had any doubts then you kind of know that they're sort of a single-minded focused person who doesn't really believe in like fates or doesn't really believe uh in doesn't have doubts about things that they could have done differently but if someone is open to it and does open up it sometimes like really kind of rattles them and, and they give you really interesting answers and so when i left uh baltimore when i when i left the sun I was really kind of like, I was comfortable. I was, you know, I wasn't necessarily happy because newspapers were in kind of a diminished spot, but I had always wanted to write for a magazine and I was scared to find out if I could really do it. And I felt like if I didn't do it, 
if I sort of took what was kind of, you know, the safe route, then I could probably be, you know, comfortable and, and I could continue to sort of pay the rent and do whatever. And if I did do it and failed, then I'd be sort of crushed and never be able to kind of write again in some ways. Cause that was always the dream. And if I got the shot of the dream and screwed it up, uh, I would sort of never kind of let myself live it down. And so that in that moment, writing about that was kind of like trying to convince myself, this is like one of those moments when, you know, like the tide has come in and you better take, take your boat out to sea and, and, you know, find out what's going to happen next because, uh, if you don't, you're going to regret it forever. And if you crash and burn, so be it. But you won't get this shot again. So that's kind of why I wrote that. Well, well said. Um, I would say, though, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like you need work if you got into Best American Sports Writer. But if you really want to get in the Best American Tweets of 2017, you need a lot of work. You're really you're coming up short. Your Twitter game is, is mediocre at best. Yeah. I don't think that you could write a 9,000 word story that ran in a daily newspaper now. So maybe there should be like best American tweets. There probably is somewhere. Sadly. My Um, buddy of mine puts together the best uh, hundred best golf tweets of the year. He's a guy, my buddy, Chris, who runs a blog, no laying up. Mm -hmm. And it's become one of my favorite things to look at every year because you see how creative and funny people can be in such a short sort of kind of time, you know, sort of uh, character limit. Right. And so that when you see stuff like that, you're like, Oh yeah, Twitter is awesome. Like, if someone could just like curate all the good tweets and then like email them to me at the end of the day and I could just read them like there, that should be a service. Could we invent that service where someone only gives me the good tweets and the good reaction tweets? And it I would just be, you'd end up getting all Clay Travis's tweets. It would just be Clay Travis's <laughs> tweets over and over again. He, he actually had a funny tweet when he was responding to my thing. Uh, he posted like a video of him like hitting a golf ball and it like, it was one of the worst golf shots I've ever seen and he said uh, in a clear sort of subtweet of me, like, imagine how bad that would be. Um, I would be without white privilege because I had, I'm a golfer. And so I had a picture of my a golf in my avatar. And I thought it was funny. I was like, I retweeted it. I was like, okay. I mean, I, I was the only, only uh, time I interacted with him in that sense. Cause I was just like, whatever, you can say what you want to say, but I'll give you this for a funny tweet. But I feel like you guys are going to go on off into the sunset and be best buddies. Think your money. You're good. Uh, I don't think so. But best of luck to him. I mean, does anybody can make a living in America doing whatever they you need to do. I'm gonna yeah. do my thing. He, I, w- I wouldn't want his job. I don't think he'd want mine. So, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Well, Kevin, listen. Thank you so much. I consider our, uh, I consider our heated and hardcore beef wrapped. Um, I'm gonna claim victory. I won. You got served, you and I feel good about that. Good. <laughs> Excellent. All right. All right. Well, Thanks so much, Kevin. I appreciate it. You bet. All right. Take you care. Bet. I want to thank today's guest, Kevin Van Valkenberg, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. One can follow Kevin on Twitter at KVanValkenberg and go to ESPN.com to read his stuff. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on both iTunes and on Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. They really are. Uh, the music, again, is by the great, sensational MC White Owl. Thank you so much for joining me. And remember, keep writing.